Welcome to the FTF podcast uh, for this month of May, passionate about food and drink. My name is James Hawkins. I'm the head of corporate affairs for the Food and Drink Federation, and I'm talking with our CEO, Ian Wright. So Ian, um, just going to have a conversation with you about the Queen's speech, and now we've had time to digest it. Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit more specifically on some of those issues and some of the different policy agendas that we are uh, that are concerning us and uh, that we're interested in. But just to start with, just more generally speaking, what is your reading now? We've now, as I say, we've had a week to digest it about about politics generally, and also about the policy making process that we can we can figure out what the government's doing post Queen's speech. Well, I think that the Queen's speech is the government's first best attempt to try and move on from both COVID and Brexit. Uh, I think, understandably, that they see this as a as the kind of mark in the ground, a signpost, a milepost, call it what you will, that will take them the route that leads away from the trials and tribulations of the Brexit period and uh, from the national nightmare of COVID. And although I, I think even the most optimistic of government uh, colleagues would say, wouldn't really pretend that either of those issues are over, I think they do hope that, that this speech gives them the chance to use clear blue water between those really intractable issues and the second half, uh, oh, the second phase of, of the Boris Johnson government. And do you think that there, there is, there's a consistent kind of policy approach or do you think it's very much kind of they're tackling issues which is in front of them and there isn't like an overarching theme, but that's the kind of impression I get. Well, I can't remember who it was in what context said this pudding has no theme, but I think um, I, I think in a way there is, if there isn't a theme, and I, I, I personally can't discern an overall theme, uh, but there is a common thread. And the common thread is that this is a government uh, unlike any you've seen before, uh, representative of a different kind of politics, uh, not representative representative of old-style conservative politics, which you know spoke to the south of England, spoke to the middle classes, and spoke to financial probity and uh, a real reluctance to spend money. Uh, I think the only thing I would say that, that that characteristic was never quite right about conservatives, but it was the kind of received wisdom. This is an interventionist government with a green tinge and with a populist feel, but which also is there trying to uh, make things better for the people who voted for it, particularly and sort of most obviously those in the red wall seats. And throwing aside some of the traditional Tory values that we associated with Margaret Thatcher and John Major, and to a degree with um, David Cameron and Theresa May. So thinking about some of those kind of more interventionist policies, the, the health and care bill was proposed and we're beginning to get some of the outlines, although we still haven't seen the consultation responses on the bit that's most pertinent to our members being around obesity policy. The FDF and our members wholeheartedly support the aims to reduce obesity rates and 
while, I mean, you can look at the reformulation programs that many members have been looking at, looking at ways to change the recipes of their foods, uh, taking out some of the sugar and the salt, reduce portion sizes. Now, sure, that has been um, prompted by some government action, but there's also kind of other areas such as where, where companies are looking to in, uh, increase fiber or fortify and bring in different vitamins and things like that into their food, which the government hasn't stressed so much and hasn't specifically targeted. So there's areas where industry is very definitely helping to support that aim of reducing obesity rates. Yet the measures that are bringing forward in this bill, the, the advertising ban, which couples with the, also with the promotion ban, they're very interventionist. And the government seems to be just ignoring the fact that this is what we believe is ineffective policymaking and disproportionate, imposes disproportionate costs on business. Why do you think that we are not getting traction? Is this an uptick and being used as a foil for COVID issue management, or do you think it speaks to something else? Well, I think it speaks to a, a, a genuine belief that obesity is part of the problem that has caused COVID. Um, I think it also demonstrates the government is um, pretty convinced that industry, in its widest sense, hasn't got anywhere else to go. And that takes you back to the essential change in the early part of this century, when you know, from 97 on, there was a bit of a love affair between business, and in particular big business, and the Blair government. As it proved its credentials uh, as a trustworthy financial steward of the UK economy, and as its prescription for reinforcing the powers of the devolved administrations without breaking up the union, and particularly as it, and I think this has been looked for very much in the research, but as it essentially resolved the Northern Ireland situation, the Blair government got more and more confident in big business and business more generally. And so for a generation, certainly from, I would say from 2000 through definitely to 2010, and possibly even a little bit beyond, um, Labour was more trusted by business than the Tories. That's gone with uh, the idiocy of Jeremy Corbyn, and to a degree actually with the callousness of Ed Miliband. And the consequence of that is that the Tory feel uh, that they can be reasonably robust with business, because there is no chance in any you know, understandable universe, the business will start to move in a different direction. Now, I actually think that's wrong in Scotland and Wales. I think I think it's perfectly possible, actually, particularly in Wales, funnily enough, for to see business deciding that the Drakeford government is a good bet for its uh, support. I think less so in Scotland, because partly because I don't think that there were very good business reactions to some of the things that um, Nicola Sturgeon felt were necessary during the uh, during the early part of the lockdown. So I think it's a more mixed picture there. But I don't think that that, that Keir Starmer or his shadow team have done much to reassure business. So I think they 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 think they can be robust with with British business. And do you think that that pattern of relationships, so big business became friends with the Blair government? Um, and big business dominated the policy discourse, and that almost privileged a way for big government to be leading government solutions. 
which is why we've had 30 years of very interventionist government obesity policy policies and regulations which have just which are now amplifying up to be very interventionist now but we still don't believe them to be ineffective well i i i think it's absolutely classic policy making that if an intervention that you make doesn't work you just double it up because yeah. you the one the intervention wrong that was wrong it was the timidness with which your timidity with which you made it is the policy makers kind of handbook says that do it very very strongly um never check whether it actually works or not um and i think that's what we're seeing here i don't i mean i i also don't think i think the government's covered on obesity interventions which will change the course of uh, people's fatness is bare i don't think they can think of any others um and it does lead you to a pretty weird set of alignments um and i think i think that is a concern will be a concern for them going forward because if if we are right and these interventions make little or conceivably absolutely zero difference it's not clear what they can do next because you you, you can't i mean they're not going to have an earlier watershed and they're not going to have uh, a, a a more complete advertising ban um, or have yet another go at promotions. So I, I think in three or four years' time, we'll be in a very interesting situation if these moves are implemented, where the government will have to either admit the failure of its own initiatives or quietly bury them. And the government has said that its latest ambition is to half charter obesity by 2030. That's just nine years away. If you were if you were health minister or should I say prime minister, how would you tackle obesity rates? Uh, well, that's such an unlikely, though entirely <laughs> to be desired uh, position that it's almost uh, a derisory question. I mean, I do genuinely think that we first of all ought to look at the figures um, and understand much more about who it is who is obese and when they become obese. Um, and I'm quite attracted, and I know this will be outrage to many people, but I'm quite attracted by the points that Chris Snowden of the Institute of Economic Affairs makes, which is that we we actually, the, the, the sort of story of obese children growing into obese uh, young adults is compelling, but entirely unbelievable when you look at the way the figures develop over time from age five right the way through to age 30 and um it, it is i think too easy to see that as the continu- continuous narrative i think there are all sorts of factors here and they're not all about high sugar uh, or over processed foods a lot of them are about social conditions a lot of them are about the kind of lives uh, particular groups of people lead a lot of them are about not just, I, I do a lot of um, fundraising in the mental health space and I've got a son who is quite significantly ill. And a lot of people who attend the health centre that we have helped fund are themselves obese and their obesity is not a function of them overeating, although that is that is one of the preconditions of their obesity as a function of their deep unhappiness. So what you were talking about there is 
Yeah. So what you were talking about there is looking at the relationship between the state, government, industry, its responsibility, and also that of individuals and 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 and, and their choices that they make. But is there is that kind of tension also being playing out in other policy areas? So looking at sustainability in the circular economy, again, we wholeheartedly support aims to to support this, but we just don't necessarily maybe disagree with we, we perhaps disagree with with the means to achieve it. And looking at producer responsibility, government is shifting the entire cost onto business in a way that doesn't take account of the way that money should be spent by the people who are paying it. Do you see the similar tension playing out there? Well, I do think that the government is genuinely green. Uh, and I think the Prime Minister is a genuine environmentalist. And I always thought it was wrong to see him as a populist in the same way as Trump. Um, I think Boris Johnson is not that kind of populist, if indeed he is a populist at all. He just likes being popular. Um, and uh, while I think that has led to all sorts of extraordinary convolutions in his career, I don't think it's remotely a dishonourable thing to do. Um, in fact, I think it's far more sensible and far more commendable to want to be popular than it is to be unpopular. Um, and only someone who was psychotic would want to be unpopular, which always made it rather difficult to understand the relationship between Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Um, but um, I think I think they have made a mistake with some of these changes or some of these proposals. I don't think this is a government which, because I think this is a government which has had its timescales really mucked up by COVID. Um, and the 2019 election was supposed to be the election which bought a year of Brexit, 2020, and then a um, and then a move into the sunlit uplands of Johnson, the Johnson uh, administration's own agenda, setting the platform for a second win in 2024. And COVID has so disrupted that timetable that they're now in a massive hurry to get the platform in place in time for them to be able to show some of the benefits by the time they get to the 23-24 period when they'll want to run an, an, another election. And I think that the, the that that's shown up in a number of the, not so much the proposals, which are in themselves relatively radical, challenging, understandable. I mean, they make sense within a particular worldview, not my worldview, but they make sense within a worldview. The trouble is, the credibility of the proposals is in real danger of being cracked by the lack of thought into the actual implementation. And I think EPR is one of those, I mean, you know, the consultation is delayed forever, then it's done in a rushed way. The model itself doesn't seem to work. And as with all of these things, enormous costs are being heaped on business as being seen as the uh, origin of the difficulties. But all business will do, because these are businesses not making very much profit, is pass the costs on to the shopper. And so we're going to see significant increases in the costs of almost all foods across the UK, uh, driven by the extra costs which industry has to bear. And somewhere along the line, the shopper is going to get quite cross about this. 
I've heard you say before that policy made in a hurry is makes bad policy. You talked about Zach being the most obvious example of that. Just talking then about this government's in a hurry to get stuff done before the next election, both to demonstrate to his own electoral base um, some dividend for its support, but also just because it obviously it has its own agenda that it needs to achieve things. What do you get? A, what sense do you get of what is therefore driving and inputting into policy making? Boris Johnson famously said, "F business." If business doesn't have a, it's not privileged a role or even respected it in its input. Who, who's inputting? Well, I think there's an enormous amount of input from uh, what possibly inaccurately is described as NGOs. Um, I think there are a lot of non-governmental organisations, some campaigning groups, some think tanks, some uh, of those who are particular issue as supporters of particular causes who are putting in uh, a lot of effort to the policy formulation process. I don't think this is a government with an enormous amount of business acumen. Uh, I, I don't see very many well-known business figures in policy-making positions or indeed in policy-influencing positions, unlike, I would say, uh, the Blair government, the Brown government, the Cameron government, the coalition government, and to a degree even the May government, where quite senior business figures would be brought in to, uh, to either author or uh, help implement big policy initiatives. And this is a government without that access to experienced implementation. And I think that will, over time, either show or they'll change it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to... Uh, these questions are actually moany. Um, we obviously kind of have our critiques of, of government policy, but we actually, in many ways, support uh, government policy objectives. And we and we, we put forward many solutions to government, including kind of ways that uh, regulations and policy making just can be just be more can be good uh, good policy, good regulation, which can, can can achieve those in different ways. Just to wrap up, what are you looking forward to in the, in the fiscal year ahead? Well, I think it'd be really interesting to see if Mr. Johnson can remain aloft in the polls without visible means of support. Um, I mean, he is a fantastic. Um, he is the fantastic Mr. Fox of um, British politics. His, his capacity to maintain his, pub, his popularity is really, really impressive. And he's, you know, he also appears to, and I think this is probably true, he appears to maintain his good humour as well, which um, is remarkable under a lot of the pressures. I suppose I'm, I'm interested to see whether he can keep that going through the next year. Uh, I'm interested to see what happens to Keir Starmer's leader Labour Party. I think he's probably got six months to turn it round. I think he has a number of potential... I mean, people have talked Well, they've talked about the fact there's no obvious successor other, other than Angela Rayner. Um, I think that's nonsense. I think there are at least three people on the Labour front bench who could quite easily take over from Mr Starmer. Um, unless he shakes his ideas up. I'm also interested to see if anybody actually does any proper analysis of the last local elections, the ones two weeks ago. Because actually, if you really look at the results, they're, they're, they're much more mixed than would have been allowed. And that's entirely Starmer's doing, because he 
stupidly got himself involved in a row halfway through the election instead of the results being declared. Um, and I, I, I'm interested to see if politics does go in the direction that Starmer sort of by mistake pushed it, or whether there is in fact a, a reappraisal of the results and then some interest in, in what the trends coming out of those results might be. Because if there is, it's, uh, and, and we saw this or we heard this on a very interesting um, discussion that you chaired this morning with um, a senior Tory advisor, I think we would see that the Tory party, in a very odd way, is moving to embrace its new supporters in the red wall seats and in former working class districts and a much more mixed group of conservative supporters. But clearly as it does so, there is a danger that it will alienate its supporters in more traditional areas in the South and the West. And we saw a bit of that on local election day. By the same token, you would have thought that Keir Starmer was out of central casting for a Labour Party leader, you know, the, one of the key North London constituencies, an incredibly successful lawyer, a man of enormous um, uh, kind of classic, from a classic working class background, elevated to, uh, the, you know, become a QC. He's even called Keir after Keir Hardy, the founder of the Labour Party. And yet he's completely cocking it up. And, you know, that, that will be a very interesting, uh, interesting challenge. And, I mean, my last word to you would be, my money's on Rachel Williams. Thanks, Ian. That's great. We will be back in a fortnight in early June with our next FDF podcast, Passionate About Food and Drink. Yeah.